Welcome to Quick Hits, the only podcast that gets you smartenized. Today's episode, Ask Dave, Volume 2. Sometimes I'll answer questions that people send me in the closing comments, but I did an Ask Dave thing a while ago, and that was kind of fun, so I asked folks to send me other questions and things that they'd like for Ask Dave, and I have a sheaf of them sitting here in front of me. And this show is going to be a little longer than Quick Hits usually is, because you sent me a lot of questions. The first one comes from frequent writer Don Venardos, who asks, why do people have different standards for politicians of their own party than they do for politicians of opposing parties? I think probably because they're people and that's the way people behave. It's not just politicians. It's church groups. It's any other affiliations that people have. They tend to think that the people who agree with them are fine and dandy and are quite willing to overlook even egregious things that they may say or do. Whereas someone who's seen as them, as opposed to us, has to undergo intense scrutiny. And we'll go after them if they mispronunciate a word or any little minor thing. But our guys, our guys are okay. Another frequent listener and writer, Irvan Andel, asks, Should government policy default to do the right thing, pensions, health care, insurance, etc., with an opt-out clause. Yeah, I think if there was an opt-out clause, most people wouldn't mind. If you could say, well, instead of Social Security, I'm going to take that money and put it in a 401k, well, then nobody would really be able to complain too much about Social Security. But government doesn't do that. Government's primary tool, their only tool when you come right down to it, is force. You must comply. You must do what we say. There is no opt-out. But yeah, if there was an opt-out, sure. I wouldn't have a problem with them trying to run their own insurance or trying to do health care or whatever. I would love to see the government try to compete with private entities when it came to that. Lee Thompson asks, Would the lead that lasses now have over lads in academic performance at the end of the next century, will it be a woman's world? I don't know. That's kind of a tough one. I kind of doubt it. Based on thousands of years of human history, the number of civilizations that have been led by women are pretty slim. And I think that may have to do with the nature of the sexes. It really doesn't have that much to do with academia. You can do great in academia and not succeed or not rise to power if that's your measure of success. And I think women are not as aggressive and as power-hungry, on average, as most men are. I think it's because they don't care as much about the things that men care about, which isn't a good thing or a bad thing. It, it just is. But who knows? Yeah, we could end up in 100 years with a world that's run more by women than by men, but that would be a pretty big change in all of human history, so I wouldn't hold my breath for it. Here's a tough one from Christy Ann, and I'm not going to say her last name because there's a lot of personal stuff in here. She says, I was listening to one of your podcasts regarding the healthcare crisis and what you think would be the best solution. 
For the average healthy person, a healthcare savings flexible spending account makes sense. And just as a review, it was a show that I did about healthcare plan where you basically had something like a 401k that you put money into and you paid your medical bills out of that and then bought high deductible coverage for catastrophic healthcare issues. So if you got $5,000 in there and you use that for your prescriptions and your eyeglasses and whatever, then you can buy a $5,000 deductible policy for major medical problems. And I think it's a great idea. It would bring the free market back to medicine where there really isn't much of a free market now because most medical bills are paid either by insurance companies or by the government. She asks, however, what would you suggest if someone is not healthy? Would you be willing to consider a more comprehensive plan for those that need ongoing treatments for life-threatening illnesses? For a real-life example, my husband is on dialysis three days a week and has been for a little over a year. She then goes on to say how he lost his job and she lost her job. And with her job, she lost her health insurance coverage. And now they're in pretty bad shape financially. They've been able to get some government assistance to cover some things. But even if she goes and finds another job and gets health insurance, he has a pre-existing condition that's very expensive that nobody wants to cover. And she wraps it up with, so if you were to somehow have the power to put through a health care plan of any kind, what would you suggest to me or someone in my situation? Well, for someone in your situation, obviously a health maintenance account isn't the answer because you'd clean that out pretty quickly. Commercial insurance is going to do everything they can to try and avoid paying off something as expensive as a lifetime of dialysis. And by the way, your husband has my sympathy. I have a friend who is in that situation too, and it's just terrible. It's all the time that he has to spend hooked up to the machines, and it's just a, a real tough way to have to live. And I think that while health maintenance accounts are a great idea, I don't think that they're the be-all and the end-all. And there are going to be some things that we have to step in to do. I think it's rare. I don't think it's something that it would happen a lot, but I do think that there's a place for it. I certainly wouldn't say, well, you know, you should be impoverished and get thrown out on the streets and, and die in your own fluids because you can't afford dialysis. And it's probably going to have to be paid for by the government. It's not likely you're going to be able to have charity fill in that gap like you could with a lot of medical things, especially less expensive medical things like vaccinations and things like that. So I would say you would need something like a Medicare, Medicaid, something that could help out folks in your situation. And unfortunately, I think you would have to have the government having a role in that or having control of that. Martin Smith writes in a whole bunch of different questions. He says, as a civil libertarian and fiscal conservative, what do you think of the Tea Party years that are going around now? Ugh. I don't know. When they first showed up, I was like, yeah, all right, finally, people are getting the idea of liberty and what it stands for. Because for 20 years, I've been waiting for this. And then they end up making Glenn Beck and Sarah Palin their de facto spokespeople. And while 
I'm sure that most of them are solid, sincere people. They're going nuts about immigration, which is really a minor problem as far as things go, as far as uh, the big picture is concerned. And there's an awful lot of fundamentalism involved with it. And I don't think that's the future of the liberty movement. I don't think you can have liberty and fundamentalism. They're completely opposed to each other, especially when you put that fundamentalism into government. So I don't know what's going on with them. It is, fortunately, very loosely organized. There's all different kinds of tea parties all over the place. And, of course, the media gives all the attention they can to the complete whack jobs. But where it goes, eh, hard to say. We'll just have to sit back and see. The future of liberty in this country, eh, things just keep getting worse and worse, frankly. Uh, we've got government telling us what kind of light bulbs we can use. And until we can get away from that whole nanny mindset, and I don't see that happening anytime soon, oh, we're in trouble. He asks, if the Republican Party implodes, and it looks like it might, do you think that the Libertarians will be there to pick up the slack? No, I don't. The Libertarians have had 30, what, 30, 40 years to do something, and they've done nothing. And as much as I like the ideas and the philosophies behind libertarianism, and I call myself a small libertarian, the fact of the matter is they have been pathetic as far as actually accomplishing anything. And if somebody gets elected to the post of dog catcher or city council planner, it's a big thing. Woohoo, a libertarian. And in reality, there is only one libertarian that I'm aware of, which is Ron Paul, who has any power at all. And he's pretty much held up by the mass media as a freak. And it's been that way for a long time. So I don't think the Libertarian Party has any teeth. And I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to see them sweep into the government. I'd like to see them just take over the House and take over the Senate or even be a significant minority. But I don't see that happening. And I think it was the second or third podcast I did was Rational Republicans, and it was a cry for the Republicans to bring in the Libertarians and bring in Libertarian ideals. And I don't really see that. The Republicans grow government just as big, and in the past administration, the last administration, even bigger than the Democrats ever did. Was there ever a conservative elected to public office that you would look up to, Goldwater or Nixon? I know they're different, but why one or the other? I think Goldwater, what I know of him, was a good man. Uh, I like his policies and his ideas. Nixon was filthy corrupt to the core of his being. And so I am not a fan of Nixon. I never could be. Here's a question I didn't ask. He goes on, do you think government can be too small? Well, I suppose in theory, yeah, it could. If it was too small to, say, defend its borders, deal with a criminal element, if it was too small to do the basic things that we expect from government, yeah. But I don't think that's ever happened. Certainly not in recent history. I've never heard anybody say, boy, you know, my government is way too small. So I'd say at this point, that's a purely theoretical question. Yeah, it's possible, but not at all likely. 
States lost their rights to their own government when they were abusing the rights of others via slavery and then segregation. Do you think that was deserved, or would you still support states to make those decisions for themselves? Well, we're talking about basic human rights here. And I think one of the very few things that the federal government is entrusted with is to support basic human rights. And if a state is abusing them, that's one of the few times the feds should come in. However, states' rights is so bound up in the idea of segregation and discrimination that if you even say it, ooh, states' rights, ooh, evil, bad, because people think of that whenever they hear anyone say states' rights. I've actually thought about doing a podcast on this subject, so I'm not going to go into great detail here, but I will say a lot of states are asserting rights over the feds, things with medical marijuana, things with refusing, actually passing laws against the Real ID Act, passing constitutional amendments against Obama's health care mandate. And so states are starting to assert themselves. And I think that's going to be very interesting how that plays out in the next few years. Here's another thing or two that I didn't ask you. I'm beginning to feel like Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana. Boy, you sure ask a lot of questions. What's going on with gay rights now, mostly gay marriage? Do you think it's right to have votes on that, like they are in California, or is it something that needs to be left to the courts like black civil rights? If black rights were left to a vote, it never would have passed. This is a problem with direct referendums. It's very easy to take away people's rights that way. And the reason that we have a republic instead of a democracy is because with a democracy, it's very easy for the majority to vote things to the disadvantage or the downright disenfranchisement of the minority. However, what I'd like to see as far as gay rights and gay marriage is concerned is I'd like to see the government get out of the marriage business completely. You shouldn't have the state say you get married. You should have the state say, okay, we recognize a civil union, a contract between two people. And if they happen to be the same gender, well, then they happen to be the same gender. And leave marriage as something for churches, for social groups, for people to even say, well, I'm married, and, and leave it up to them to make that decision, as opposed to having the states in that business. Here's a question from Randy Hinckley, who starts out saying, I listened to the podcast for the past few months. I found you via your patiobooks.com release of Blood Witness. The book was certainly original, and though I'm not keen on vampires, the idea of tying it to the Jehovah's Witnesses intrigued me. Hey, this gives me a chance to give a plug for Blood Witness, instead of waiting for their closing comments. It's a free patio book about a Jehovah's Witness who becomes a vampire, and if that sounds bizarre, it is, and funny, and it has some gross scenes and some action and some sex and naughty language and humor. So you can get that at patiobooks.com. You can go to bloodwitness.com and find it. It's available on iTunes. It's pretty much all over the place. My question for Ask Dave is this. Is it possible to be a skeptic and still have faith? Personally, I was raised Baptist in rural Texas in a small town where there were few minorities due to the fact that the Klan was prevalent in the area. My views have certainly changed as I have grown both physically and mentally and have gotten past the insane notions that homosexuality is the root of several kinds of evil and sex before marriage will send you straight to hell. 
I believe there is a God and that most people that proclaim him, be it Judaism, Islam, Christianity, and cults, royally piss him off. Back to my question. Is it possible to logically reconcile faith and science? While the theory of evolution explains most things, the theory is not 100% applicable to nature. Some question the existence of a higher being, yet at the same time there are some things that cannot be explained without the presence of a higher being. As Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote in The Sign of the Four, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. The first thing that you need to realize is that skepticism and atheism are two different things. It's easy to make that mistake because the majority of skeptics are atheists, but there are skeptics who do have a religious belief. Martin Gardner passed away recently. One of the best-known skeptics of the past century, a mathematician, brilliant guy, and he was a deist. And he said that he would admit freely that there was no logical proof, there was no way to support deism, but it made him feel good to think there was a God out there, and so he decided to believe that. That sounds pretty harmless to me. I know skeptics who are Christians. Now, Christianity will fall apart under logic and reason. And they'll tell you, quite freely, that they don't apply skepticism to that part of their lives. And they find comfort and hope in their Christianity, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as they're not bothering other people with it. Now, as far as the theory of evolution explaining most things but not being 100% applicable to nature, I'm not aware of any exceptions. But even if there were, I think you're falling into the mistake of the God of the gaps. The God of the gaps is a simple concept that when we don't understand something, we say God did it. When we didn't know what lightning was, we said ah, God did it. Then when we understood what lightning was, we no longer attributed it to a deity. And the same goes for a lot of things. Well, there's a lot of unanswered questions in science. Science is all about finding the answers to unanswered questions. And although our knowledge gets greater and greater with each passing day, there probably always will be unanswered questions in science. These gaps get smaller and smaller, but saying God did it is actually a substitute for saying, I don't know. And frankly, I'm perfectly happy with saying, I don't know, or even, I don't understand this. Because there's a lot of things that I don't understand, things that are too complicated for me, string theory, some aspects of quantum physics and mechanics. I don't understand them. I don't know. But I'm not going to say, God did it. But if it makes you feel happy to say, God did it, and you're not being obnoxious about it, and you're not trying to push your faith on other people, well, fine. More power to you. And finally, Stephen Dawson writes from The Land Down Under. I remembered your audio episode and your reference to LRF as a selling point for items of equipment. LRF stood, of course, for Little Rubber Feet. 
If you missed that episode, it was about audio woo-woo, and I sold audio for, I don't know, probably six or seven years back in the late 70s, early 80s. It was my first real career. And we would get really obnoxious people that would come in and would start throwing numbers around and wanted to show off how smart they were. And one of the ways that we amused ourselves when they were throwing in all kinds of numbers and abbreviations was to say this particular piece of equipment has LRF support. And LRF stood for little rubber feet. He says, what I was wondering was, what was your backup? If you told a customer that item X was great because it had LRF, surely eventually one would say, what does that mean? I imagine you wouldn't just say, little rubber feet. So what was your plan for that fateful day? My plan for that fateful day was to just kind of laugh it off and say, oh, little rubber feet, and pass it off as a joke. But you know what? I probably used that line a couple hundred times over the course of many years. Now, remember, we only used this on the obnoxious people that were coming in and throwing numbers around. You know, we didn't use it on the folks who were there to say, hey, I've got questions and, and you know, asking smart questions oh, and looking for help. But it was for the folks who were trying to show off, trying to show off how smart they were. And I always wondered, yeah, somebody would call me on that. And the hundreds of times that I used that line on those obnoxious people, they never, ever did. And that's it for this episode of the Quick Hits Podcast. If you've learned a little something, if you've changed your mind, or even if you can just understand a different point of view without necessarily agreeing with it, congratulations, you've been smartenized. music that you're hearing is from the aquamarines this piece is called my wonderful shadow and they've been nice enough to let me use it all these years so they do have a new cd out you can go to the aquamarines.com and check it out i don't really have a lot for you here uh just say check out the blog at davehit.com i've had some problems with google and suddenly my stuff is not appearing there, not appearing there very high ranked, and I'm dealing with that. It's really a good illustration of the power of Google. If they don't like you, you pretty much disappear from the net. But if you just go to www.davehitt.com, you'll find a plethora of stuff going back, uh, back to 1999 when I first put up the Hitman Chronicle. So stop by there, stop by the blog, leave some comments. And until then, there's just one more thing, and that is to remind you that the Quick Hits Podcast is little more than a journal of one man's opinion and therefore should not be taken too seriously. Seriously.